0: Well, our text for this morning has been taken from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together as your people this morning. We thank you for this portion of your word that you have preserved down to this very day and delivered to us. We ask that by your spirit, you would meet us where we are today that as we have already confessed our sin to you and stand, as it were, naked and exposed before you, that you would meet us with the compassion and the steadfast love that we have already thought about, confessed, and sang. Thank you for giving us your word, and by your spirit would you help us to understand and apply these things to our lives. May we be strengthened through these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in January of 2020, there's a wildly popular YouTube duo that's called Rhett and Link. Maybe you're familiar with them. They uh, organize a podcast and a YouTube channel called Good Mythical Morning. Well, in January of 2020, Rhett and Link produced a series of episodes for their podcast in which they shared for the first time really ever what they described as their spiritual deconstruction. And here's how they told the story. Though they had been brought up in Christian homes... Though they had engaged in campus ministry, even served as missionaries and leaders in campus ministry, Rhett and Link had come to a point in their lives where they were no longer willing to identify as Christians, and they wanted to go public with this news. Now, in her book, Another Gospel, Alicia Childers defines deconstruction this way. It is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. And Childers observes that sometimes when Christians deconstruct, they deconstruct all the way to atheism, while others embrace a kind of reconstruction that it almost never resembles the Christianity that they formerly knew. Now, deconstruction, it would appear, seems to be a new word for a very old problem, and that is apostasy, is when those who profess faith in Christ turn away from Christ for various reasons. And as I listened to Rhett and Link back in 2020, and I believe I wasn't alone, millions of people have watched these videos and listened to these podcasts, I was impressed by their honesty. Of their, of their willingness to really tell their story and to be transparent and authentic. But as I listened, I was also deeply disturbed by the story that I was hearing because I had heard their story before. I had heard their story on YouTube or in a podcast. I had heard the same kind of story across the table from friends of mine, from fellow church members, even from loved ones. And, and maybe you've had these same kinds of conversations with others or even... Yourself, each and every person asking a different set of good and hard questions, but haunted by the same set of doubts. Doubts that that we we hear in our own hearts, doubts that we even see here in the book of Hebrews. As you guys will remember, the, the book of Hebrews, it's first delivered to these Jewish Christians living outside of Rome who were experiencing real persecution because of following Jesus, these Christians had been disowned by their families. They had lost jobs. They had been pushed out of the public square, and it wouldn't be very long before Emperor Nero would begin to make lives of Christians especially difficult and threaten their very lives. They would find themselves not just fearful of things on the outside, but beginning to ask questions, hard questions, even in their own hearts. Things like What if I'm wrong about Jesus? What about the angels? What about the temple? What about Moses? And as we read the book of Hebrews, we come to these questions and we think that they sound strange. What about Moses? What about the angels? What about the temple? But for these people, their questions were just as important and personal to them as our questions and doubts are to us. What do we do with these questions? What are we supposed to do with these doubts that we have? And I think, honestly, what we tend to do is that when we find ourselves in this situation, we tend to keep them to ourselves, or at least maybe our Google search history. We assume that good Christians don't experience doubt. We wrongly believe that these kinds of questions aren't welcome in a church community. But this could not be further from the truth. In fact, in our passage this morning in Hebrews, what we find is not that God tells us, just ignore your questions, just repress your doubts. No, no, we see God coming to us in the person of Jesus saying, your questions and your doubts are an invitation to deeper study of the truth about Jesus. I want you to notice in verse 1 that the only command that we have in this entire passage, the author of Hebrews says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This word that is translated consider, it doesn't simply mean to remember or to think about in a general sense. It means to study to give yourself to looking at something intently from every possible angle as if it really mattered. This is how the author of Hebrews and how the Lord calls us to address our questions and our doubts. But before we can turn our eyes clearly to Jesus himself, which we'll do in just a moment here. The author of Hebrews begins by saying, in order to do this well, we have to first address our own assumptions about our lives, about our culture, and about our questions. This is why in verse two, we see that the author of Hebrews here isn't just simply talking about Christ, but comparing Christ to the very question that these Christians were asking, namely, Moses. I want you to notice the interaction between verses 1 and verse 2. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. Now, let's take a moment and meet these Christians in the first century where they are. And I think it's safe to say, it might be a pretty obvious observation to you guys, that Moses is a pretty important person to the Jewish people, right? And this makes sense, right? If we, if we spend any time in the Old Testament, we know that Moses was the man that God used to deliver his people out of slavery. He was the man that God used to deliver God's law to his people and his covenant to God's people at Mount Sinai. And he was even the person that God used to lead his people right up to the edge of the promised land. Now, the story goes on, but you can imagine that Moses, as this character in Scripture, is very, very significant. But what is important for us to understand is that, how, however much important Moses is to the Old Testament, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, To really understand the place of Moses in the mind of the first century, we don't actually need to know more about the Old Testament. We need to know more about the Pharisees and their influence on the Jews in the first century. So you're familiar with with who the Pharisees are if you've read the Gospels. Jesus interacts with them pretty regularly. He calls them out for their hypocrisy. He confronts them in their teaching. But, But who are these people? The Pharisees, are these religious leaders. And they didn't form kind of right when Jesus was on the scene. They had formed almost 200 years before Jesus was born. Now, their goal, this group called the Pharisees, was to provide religious purity and religious stability to the nation of Israel. And here's what they taught. They taught that the coming of the Messiah would be a military leader. And that this military leader, this king, would come to conquer Israel's foreign oppressors. And In the first century, that would have been clearly understood as Rome. And that the Pharisees taught that when the Messiah came, not only would he destroy Israel's oppressors, but he would save, and here's the operative word here, faithful Israel. Namely, those who kept the law of Moses. And so for the Pharisees, this clearly placed the keeping of the law right at the heart of their teaching. In fact, by the time Jesus is born in the first century, the Pharisees had introduced rabbinic laws and traditions intentionally to help the Israelites stay away from breaking the law. It's like a law that keeps you from breaking the law. They called it fencing the Torah. And all of this was under this umbrella called the law of Moses. This is how they taught their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so what this means is that when the first century Jews that are reading this letter of Hebrews for the first time, when they opened up the scriptures and they heard questions about Moses, they were coming at it from this particular vantage point. Keep the law of Moses and find salvation when the Messiah comes. And it's important to understand that this cultural view of Moses consumed most of Jewish thought and made the question about Moses very, very meaningful to these Christians in the book of Hebrews. Now, this is true about all of our questions and all of our doubts we too live in a cultural context where very specific questions are approached in very specific ways because of our cultural and personal assumptions. And it's when we are unwilling to actually address those assumptions about our culture or about our hearts or about our experiences that we will actually be unable to really consider Jesus. And this is because those questions and the assumptions that we're unwilling to acknowledge, they will consume every aspect of the conversation. It's only until we're actually willing to hear God's word clearly and afresh on our questions and on our doubts that we will be able to begin moving forward. And this is why in verse five, the author of Hebrews shifts in how he talks about Moses. I want you to notice in verse five, after comparing Jesus and Moses for a few verses, he says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. He doesn't disparage the question concerning Moses. He doesn't even really speak poorly about Moses himself. What he does is he takes Moses and the question about Moses, and he puts it in its proper context because he actually reads the scriptures properly. In fact, it's when this kind of cultural assumption about Moses is cleared away the scriptures are able to speak clearly to these Jewish Christians who are asking this question, well, what about Moses? Because when we look across the Old Testament, for example, in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses never placed himself at the center of the story Moses was always recognizing himself as the servant he has testified to be in Hebrews, and Moses saw himself as anticipating a greater leader for God's people. I'll just read Deuteronomy 18. Moses said to the nation of Israel, listen, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses was raised up not to be a faithful savior to God's people, but to point God's people to the faithful savior, namely Jesus Christ. And as we make our way through the Old Testament, you will see time and time again that these people that are often held up as heroes of the Old Testament are deeply flawed human beings in need of God's grace, raised up for a particular occasion in a particular office, whether prophet, priests, or kings, all to demonstrate where they failed, the Messiah would come and be the faithful one. It was never about Moses in the centrality of that question. Moses was raised up so that he might point to the real sent one from God. This intersects with our questions and our doubts so well. What, what is your question? What is the issue that is gnawing in your heart? Is, is it the question of the interaction between faith and science? Is it the question of gender or sexuality? Is it the issue of women or reproductive rights? Is it the issue of racism? Is it the issue of theology? Is it the issue of church and its use or abuse? of power throughout church history. It's important to understand as we see in this passage, God is not asking you or telling you to ignore that question. What he is saying is allow these questions to be transformed by his word from a barrier to Christ into a doorway, into a deeper understanding of Christ. Are you willing to actually address the assumptions that you have about the questions you are asking? Are you willing to come to God's word and listen afresh and be willing to learn and to see what God would reveal to you about himself and about your questions and about the world? And a really great kind of contemporary example of a person that God demonstrated his grace toward and did this very thing, is a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield, as some of you may know, once taught at the University of Syracuse. She was in the queer studies program, was a practicing lesbian, and was ready, getting ready for her tenure, writing a book and put out an op-ed about the Christianity that she saw around her. And as you can imagine, Rosaria Butterfield, after writing this op-ed piece, as she describes the story, received a lot of fan mail, people saying, yeah, tell Christians how awful they are, and a lot of hate mail, a lot of Christians saying, you are a terrible person and what you are saying needs to stop. And yet, as she sifted through her mail, as she tells the story, putting some of her hate mail over here and some of her fan mail over here, she got a, a letter from a pastor whose name is Ken. And Ken was a, a pastor of a church in Syracuse at the time, and he wrote basically saying, I'd love to get to know you, and I'd love to talk to you about the things you, you brought up in your op-ed. In 2013, after a long friendship with uh, Ken and his wife Flo, Rosario Butterfield wrote an article basically as her testimony. And here's how she remembers the experience of meeting Ken and meeting Flo and meeting Jesus. Something else happened, she writes. Ken and his wife Flo and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They didn't act as if such conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm and yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Flo did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be their friends. And so I started reading the Bible. Then she goes on to write this. This is amazing. Did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I fully understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of the day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of Scripture, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world in two and divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? And then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed, and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Flo was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there. There, Jesus triumphed. I encourage you to find this article of Rosaria Butterfield's on Christianity Today. Her testimony is quite remarkable and full of encouraging things. But what we see in this testimony was Rosaria Butterfield, through Genuine, open-hearted, open-hearted relationships with Christians, she met Jesus. She heard the scriptures clearly as within that relationship, she had the space to do so. Rosario Butterfield started considering Jesus. And in the midst of studying Jesus alongside these Christians, the Lord worked in her heart. This is where the author of Hebrews goes next, as he encourages his brothers and sisters to consider Moses and his comparison to Jesus. He then lays out for us all these things about Jesus that we too must study as we come to our questions and our doubts. Notice in verse one how he describes Jesus. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The first thing that he identifies about Jesus in this passage is he calls Jesus the apostle. Now, the word apostle, it simply means one who is sent. It's, it's the idea of an official person that's being sent on behalf of another person to speak or to act on their behalf. Behalf. And so when we, when we look throughout the New Testament and we see people like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter, what we're saying is that these people have been set apart. They have been raised up as official people to represent Jesus in the first century as the apostles. And what we see here is that Jesus is being described with that exact same word, the apostle. He's being described as the sent one. The the sense here is that Jesus is the chief official representative of God Himself to us. This is what we see actually in chapter one of Hebrews, where the, the word apostle is not used to describe kind of the activity that's going on, but in the beginning chapter it says, Long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, these official spokesmen on behalf of God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is what it means that Jesus is the apostle, the sent one. But what I think is maybe important for us to consider is that while we may see this in the book of Hebrews, is it worth considering whether Jesus identified himself as this kind of person when he was in his earthly ministry? And in fact, he actually does identify himself as the one uniquely, holistically sent from God. Think of the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 18, when as he is praying to the Father, it is chronicled that He says, as you, heavenly Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus, as we consider him, we need to meet him on his own terms. He claims to be the sent one from God himself. But the author of Hebrews goes on and says, as you consider Jesus, consider not only that he is the sent one, from God. He is also the high priest. And we're going to spend a lot more time talking about what it means for Jesus to be the high priest in the coming chapters. But to understand this idea of the high priest, we go to Leviticus. Chapter 16, especially, when we look at the Day of Atonement, where once a year, God's people would be represented by the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies where God himself dwelled to make a sacrifice for his own sin so that he might be purified and enabled to make sacrifice for the sins of God's people. And the whole purpose of that was so that a holy God could live with an unholy people by means of sacrifice and by means of purifying. That as the high priest who was qualified to do so and appointed to do so sacrificed on behalf of the people, the people were cleansed of their sin and they could dwell with God and more importantly, God could dwell with them. The author of Hebrews, as we'll look at much more as we continue to go on in this book, says Jesus is not only the sent one of God, he is also the high priest. Over and above any of the high priests that we see in the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. But does Jesus say this about himself? Does Jesus identify himself as the high priest? And I I believe that he does. I believe he demonstrates this when we look in passages like Luke 22, that as he is instituting the Lord's Supper and saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, and we will look at these things as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment. But it's when Christ is instituting the Lord's Supper that he presents himself as not just the lamb that will be slain but as the one who will be offering these things on behalf of God's people. Jesus is the sent one from God. He is the high priest, but both of these identities as prophet, priest, or king, which we don't necessarily see fleshed out in this passage, all center on the most important identity of Jesus. Namely, he is not a servant of God in the Moses sense of the word. He is God's son himself. I want you to go back to verses five and six and notice this. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. You know, at various points uh, in my Christian life, I've heard people ask the question, you know, if God really wanted me to know that he existed or if God really wanted us to know that Jesus is his son, why doesn't he just write it in the sky or just make it audible for everyone to hear? And at some level, there's a, like a theological or philosophical way of approaching that. But another way is just to say, he did He did it twice, actually. I'll just tell you about one of them. In Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, beginning his earthly ministry, it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, the thing that everyone's been asking for, said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We see this claim that Jesus is the son of God present in the life of Jesus himself. In fact, this same message is echoed later at the transfiguration. And when God speaks there, he says, this is my son, listen to him. Not just to Moses not just to Elijah, not just to the other heroes of the Old Testament. Listen to him, which begs such an important question. We have all these doubts, all these questions, all these various things that we want to study. Have you considered Jesus? Have you considered studying the life and the person and the claims of Christ himself? Have you, are you willing to go to the Gospels fresh and say, do I actually know who Jesus is and who Jesus claimed to be? Because invariably, when and if we do this, not only will you be actually being intellectually honest, you'll actually be putting yourself in a position where you can hear the word of God clearly. And when people have done this throughout history, even those who describe themselves as reluctant converts See Jesus and come to Christ in ways that they could have never imagined. This is what happened to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis grew up in the church but turned away from Christ at some point. He was very much steeped in his atheism and very much interested in being a modern man in that sense of the word. And yet, when he found himself coming, in relationship with Christians and asked to consider Jesus over and over and over again. He couldn't get away from it. He couldn't get away from what Jesus claimed about himself, that he was the son of God, the sent one, the high priest, the king. And so Lewis continued to think about these things, and the Lord used the Christians in his life and these thoughts that he was having about Jesus to make him alive to bring answers to his questions, but more importantly, salvation to his soul. And this is why in Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say something like, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he is a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him uh, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but don't come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He doesn't leave this open to us, and he never intended to. Consider Jesus, the author of Hebrews says. It doesn't leave out the question of, what if this is all just legend? Let me recommend a book to you that's out in the lobby right now by F.F. F. Bruce. It's called, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? I encourage you to start there with your questions, to ask yourself, is the New Testament actually a document worth considering reliable concerning Jesus? I'll give you the cliff notes, but I, again, encourage you to check the book out. In F.F. Bruce's summation and scholarly research, he demonstrates very convincingly that the gospel accounts are all based on true eyewitnesses, that they are all written very closely to the dates of the events themselves, namely Jesus's life death, and resurrection from the dead. That there's plenty of manuscript evidence to prove that the accounts of the Gospels are the original accounts, and these things are even corroborated by extra-biblical accounts. There is good reason to trust the New Testament, and the New Testament puts forward this question in high relief. Are you willing to consider Jesus? Because it's when we do this that confidence and courage in our Christian lives begin to flow. Let me tend us back to the book of Hebrews here. I want you to notice here, as the author of Hebrews is making his way, considering Jesus, considering Moses, he also considers us. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And in verse six, he says, we are his house, that which Christ is building, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Studying Christ, the author of Hebrews says, it will not deepen our doubts. It will deepen our confidence in our confession. This word confession here in the book of Hebrews, it means that which we say publicly. Just like Rhett and Link we're willing to say, I'm no longer willing to be a Christian. This is the same idea of, it will give us confidence to study Christ as he actually is in the Gospels. It will give us confidence to say out loud, I am with Jesus and Jesus is with me. We will see firsthand that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Not based on a feeling that we have about some general spirituality, but genuine facts of history that demonstrate Jesus is the apostle. He is the high priest of God. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And it's in that confidence of our confession that we will have courage in our calling as God's people. He says here, the author of Hebrews, we are God's house. And this word is being used kind of as a play on words to say we are the place where God dwells now. Not in the temple in Jerusalem, but by the Spirit His people constitute this new temple where God dwells. We see this all throughout the New Testament. But this word that's translated house, it also can be translated household. That we're not just simply a building that God is putting together, though we are that in a sense. We are the people whom God is gathering together by his spirit through the confession of Christ, our king, our savior, that God is constituting a spiritual family that transcends cultures, that transcends time, that transcends ethnicity, that transcends all of our questions and all of our doubts. Just as God has established a place for himself to dwell among us, he has given us a spiritual family. A spiritual family where it is safe to have questions and doubts. A spiritual family where Christ is exalted and each and every week, this family comes together and says, consider Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the mercy and the grace that you have extended to us. We thank you for gathering us together as your people this morning to worship you and to hear your word. Help us in our hearts to bring our questions and our doubts to you honestly and genuinely, not to hide in the dark, but to expose ourselves to you so that we might experience your mercy and your grace in a way that we haven't before. I especially pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus clearer than we have so that our confession would be grounded and rooted in facts grounded and rooted in certainty and that our courage would be bolstered by the work of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we thank you and praise you. Amen.